This is Straight Talk for Real Life, produced by Hewlett Packard Enterprise. On a scale of 0 to 10, with 10 representing your very best possible, most happy life, where would you say your happiness level is at this very moment? Or how about when you're at work? I'm hoping you're at a 10, but if you're like me, there may be at least a little room to boost your happiness level. We can, to some degree, control our happiness because we can develop skills to manage our mind and mood, to maintain our well-being, to improve our willpower, to harness our energy in ways that are energizing. It turns out that there is a road to happiness and today we'll give you some turn-by-turn -turn directions that can help you get back on the right track. Join us for some happiness hacks. You'll be happy you did. The purpose of this podcast is to foster discussion, not to provide advice. The information shared should never be used as an alternative to obtaining personalized advice from a healthcare professional. And listeners should seek such advice independently if they have any questions related to their physical or mental health. This podcast hosts different viewpoints, and the opinions of the speakers do not necessarily reflect the views of HPE. Hi there, I'm Bob Peacock. Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life. Who couldn't use a little more happiness in our lives? Today, we're going to talk with a happiness expert about what we can do to boost the happiness levels in our lives. But truthfully, sometimes it seems like the world is moving in an opposite direction, doesn't it? People seem a little more irritated, a little more self-centered, and just not very happy. And some data would support it. Gallup's Global Emotions Report recently showed that the world is more stressed out than ever before, with 4 in 10 adults across 122 countries saying that worry and stress are at all-time highs. In another study 17 years ago, Gallup first asked the question that I asked at the beginning of this episode. On a scale of 0 to 10, with 10 being your happiest life, where would you rank your happiness? 17 years ago, 3.4% of the participants around the world said that their lives were a 10. Fast forward to today, and we have some good news and some bad news. Compared with 17 years ago, the number of people living their best lives has more than doubled to 7.4%. However, the number of people saying that they are living their worst lives has more than quadrupled. And if you look at the spread between the happiest 20% and the unhappiest 20%, the gap in those happiness ratings is the highest it has ever been in the history of Gallup's tracking. So we thought today we'd talk with a happiness expert to see what we can do to boost our own happiness level. Would fame make us happier? How about wealth or high achievement? Or is there another secret ingredient? I'd like you to meet Stella Grisant, a positive psychologist and an expert on happiness. In fact, in January, she was invited by Time magazine to be one of its happiness experts. She's also the founder and CEO of WUPA, a company that focuses on workplace well-being and engagement. And I understand she is now the author of a new book, and we'll find out more about that too. Stella, welcome. Thank you so much, Bob. So excited to be here. What a great 
subject to be an expert in. Everybody <laughs> wants more happiness in their lives, right? In fact, uh, I read that people rank happiness as being more important than acquiring money and having good health. Yes, I wanted more happiness too, which is why I went off and studied the science of happiness. Uh, so. so I want to start there. How did you become a happiness expert and how does your company help people lead people to happier lives? Well, uh, my pursuit started because I was feeling so miserable and so burnt out at work for the first decade of my career. And I kept searching for that dream job and feeling like I found it and then just finding myself crashing into burnout because I was doing and working so hard um, and then so confused when I found myself having nothing left to give. And then I just kept hopping from job and even switching careers and, and finding myself in the same place. And I really wanted to understand, you know, what was it that helps people thrive and how do we come alive at work and actually stay that way? And so I went to study it at it's called, I, I studied applied positive psychology, which is the science of happiness and well-being uh, at UPenn. And that uh, started me on my journey. And I'd say I'm still on it. Just because I study happiness doesn't mean I've nailed it all the time. <laughs> so let's start with the basics. What is true happiness? Yeah, that's such a good question. And even in, in the field of positive psychology, the definition's been evolving. I think when we speak just human to human and, you know, we're just in conversation, when we talk about happiness, I think we're talking about something a little bit more meta, which describes our overall state of, of, of well-being and that, you know, how, how do I feel about my life? Yeah. And am I feeling generally fulfilled and peaceful and and good about things and are my relationships doing well? I think it's a it's a less specific type of uh, definition when it's just like person to person just chit-chatting. Um when we talk about it in in, in positive psychology, happiness is specific to our emotional state and specifically like the positive emotions, which there's a number of them from uh, gratitude to awe to love um, to inspiration. So we're specifically experiencing positive emotion. But I think, you know, again, just human to human when we're talking about it very casually, I, you know, when, when people talk to me about happiness, I think what they're really aching for is something deeper than just like, I want to feel super joyful in this specific second. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the way that we refer to that in positive, in, in positive psychology, there's something called the theory of well-being, And there's, there's five drivers to what we call flourishing, which I think is a little bit more of what I think we mean when we're in casual conversation. We really want to be flourishing. And that means that we're experiencing positive emotion because we want to feel good, but we're also highly engaged in our work and in you know the moment. We're having rich relationships. We have a deeper sense of meaning. We are contributing to something bigger. And then we have a sense of uh, achievement. 
and a mastery of what it is that we're doing. So those are the kind of the five drivers to this state of flourishing. And I think that's ultimately when we say, you know, I just want to be happy. I think we want to be flourishing. And why does happiness matter? Why is happiness something we really should be paying attention to? Such a great question, because I think we used to we used to feel like happiness is something you get when you're done working hard or achieving. It's like a byproduct. But actually, what we know from the research is that happiness actually fuels us experiencing more success and more richness in our relationships and the quality of our life. It also extends our life. It actually contributes to our longevity. Yeah. So we know that people who reflect on their life in a more positive fashion end up living longer. So we also know that having more positive emotions actually helps your cardiovascular system, helps your immunity. So it it literally gives you years to your life and it helps your productivity, it helps your creativity, it helps your relationships. In fact, there were, I remember there was one study that even said it actually makes you more attractive. So if you're single, <laughs> <laughs> that's one thing you can do is just work on you know, your overall mood. And Everybody just started smiling right there. <laughs> I think because I think our, our natural, when we're not in a state of anxiety, um, when we're in a state of, of presence and joyfulness and peace and gratitude, we're actually more open. Um, we're actually signaling that we're ready for connection. And ultimately, I think what we're all here for is to be connected. And so happiness is just, is, is, a, is not only a means, but a byproduct of being well and and being connected and and being alive i mean yeah yeah yes so i talked about gallup's research and and Mm -hmm. how the perception can be that the world isn't very that happy right now what does your own research show are people less happy today and do we have control over our own happiness well i think if we were to also and i don't know if that's if the Gallup study looked at our sense of connectedness or loneliness, but I do know that the research shows that we continue to see a rise in a sense of loneliness. And especially, you know, with the pandemic, I think we've all um, felt a little bit more isolated, not just physically, but, you know, emotionally. And so I think that is a big driver for how we describe the quality of our happiness and well-being. In fact, one of the biggest drivers to how happy we are is the quality of our relationships. And so despite the fact that we're more connected than ever before with our gadgets and our social media, we're also feeling lonelier than ever before. Yeah. And we have to not just connect with text and likes and things like that, but you know, sociologists call that social snacking. It's, you know, just those, it's like little, it's like grabbing a bag of chips from the vending machine. But in order for us to really feel feel satiated and feel like we're living our best life, we need the feast. And that's presence, that's deep connection 
and, and love. And mm. in fact, when we think about positive emotions, love is the super emotion. And Barbara Fredrickson, who's one of the leading you know, researchers on positive emotion, um, wrote a whole book about love and, and the science of love. And she talks about how it's the supreme emotion above all else. It's as vital to our well-being as sunshine and water. And we know that when we're not feeling connected, um, that can be very devastating to our well-being. In fact, just one day of loneliness, you can see higher levels of cortisol in someone's urine that next morning. So our body is constantly responding to the amount of connectedness we experience. And when we're not feeling connected, it can be really harsh. And, and now that we're working remotely more and more, those just casual moments of chit-chat, they do a lot for our well-being. In fact, there was a study that just showed that we need both deep relationships and strong ties, but also we need weak ties. We need like, just like we need diversity in our diet, we need diversity in the types of relationships we have. And so the casual chit-chat, the hello to, you know, the security guard as you're walking in the building or the person who served you your coffee, those are also important, just like talking to your best friend or to your boss. Like all of those relationships are important. And when we're not together, I think we, we really feel it. Yeah, and being able to build on other people's positivity. Um, I mean, the, the, the human brain kind of has this negativity bias. And many of us feed ourselves these pessimistic messages all the time. And we might mask it by trying to, to say that we're being constructive uh, or, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to come up with better ideas for how we can improve. But when we complain, especially if we complain to others, and it, you know, they, it feels good because they jump right in and they agree with us, but being a complainer can actually backfire. Isn't that right? Yeah, I often say, um, I talk about these three mental traps that really sabotage our happiness, and complaining is one of them, because it does kind of, it's like opening Pandora's box. It's really triggering that negativity bias, which is our brain's obsession with paying attention to anything that's bad, wrong, or threatening. And so complaining, just to def just in terms of how I define it, is not just the observation of what's wrong, it's the energetic suffering around what's wrong. So I could say, oh, it's really hot outside today. Or I could be like, oh my God, it's so hot, you know, and really, so it's, um, it's like adding a layer of suffering and, you know, um, suffering is human and that's fine, but, you know, sometimes we have choice. And, um, and when we have choice, what we want to see is if we can just observe what's wrong be, and, and notice the emotion we're feeling without kind of adding an extra layer to it by kind of complaining and, and it's adding fuel to the yeah. fire. Yeah. Well, clearly you, you mentioned the, the pandemic. It took a lot of wind out of everyone's happiness sails. 
in fact, in 2020, the COVID response tracking study conducted by the University of Chicago determined that people, at least in the U.S., are more unhappy today than they've ever been in, in nearly 50 years, with only 14% of American adults saying that they're very happy, and that's down 31% who said the same in 2018. So my question is, can we be happier if we just decide to change our attitude, or is it just not that simple? Yeah, such a good question, and I think it's a, there's many ways to answer it. So one is that we all have more control than we think. We can, to some degree, control our happiness because we can develop skills to manage our mind and mood, to maintain our well-being, to improve our willpower, to harness our energy in ways that are energizing. So we can control things to a certain point. There's also systemic issues in our world right now that make it very difficult for us to be cheerful. Um, so I think that I operate from helping people control what they can. And, um, and, and so, yes, you can improve your mood just by small things, like small individual things like gratitude, practice. I mean, everyone knows this. I call it the boring basics because... <laughs> Everyone's so tired of hearing these things, which are so hard for us to do, but they're so simple, right? Like, And they're so true. They're That's so right. true. Like, I, how annoying is it for someone to tell you to practice your gratitude again? But like, it works. How annoying is it to hear someone to say, just focus on your breath, um, take time to meditate, exercise. All of these are boring basics. And man, are they so hard sometimes to actually do on a regular basis. So if we just tend to those things, which are so simple and might not even take that much time, um, they can dramatically improve our, our mood and our sense of well-being. Like immediately, um, we, you know, we, we know from research that practicing your gratitude can, can shift your mood and life satisfaction if you practice it consistently for six weeks, we know that just one workout can improve your mood like immediately and with and, and help your mood for hours afterwards. Um, you know, all of these things are, are they work um, and we just have to kind of get out of our heads and, and do them. And I know there are certain times of the year that can affect our happiness, like the holidays for many. Um, it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, but those high expectations that we put upon ourselves can really have an opposite effect. And if people are feeling a little blue over the holidays, what do you recommend? It depends on, you know, what works for you. I like to have like kind of a, a toolkit and I, I go through it when I'm in a funk. I'll just try a bunch of different things until I, I see myself kind of feeling, moving the dial. Yeah. So the first thing when you're feeling off and you're feeling blue is to label it, right? It's not to try to push away the emotion and to get over it, but really just to see what's going on, what's trying to get your attention. And so I like to just label the emotion 
Uh, we know from studies that labeling the emotion, that just calling it out actually diffuses it. It actually, what you're doing is you're taking the an attention away from your limbic brain, your reptilian brain, the part that's in fight or flight, and you're moving your energy towards your prefrontal cortex, which is the planning. It's the executive center of your brain. So by really stopping and reflecting, what's this emotion that's coming up for me? And being still enough to be reflective, you're kind of activating a different part of your brain, which not only helps start to diffuse that grip of fear and and, and anxiety and, and worry in the body, but what you're also starting to do is to help yourself see a path forward to help you actually move through this. So if you can quiet down and just give it a name, what's the specific thing that's happening for me? You will help yourself metabolize that moment. And then I like to always add a schmear of self-compassion. So just to give yourself some relatedness to this is a tough time. It's very triggering for a lot of people. And there's a lot of pressure in the holidays. Like, oh my God, how many gifts you have to buy and things you have to attend and planning. Oh my God. It's just, it's so overwhelming. So of course you might be feeling stressed and agitated and resentful or, or just so tired. And so just to put your hand on your heart and give yourself that compassion, self-compassion. So once you're, once you've done that, you know, just, just reflect on, okay, are you starting to see yourself breathe a little bit lighter? Um, and then breathing is another thing I'm constantly using as a mechanism to speak to my nervous system and get back to calm because oftentimes we don't even realize our body is in fight or flight. And so our breath is one of the simplest, easy access ways to regulate our nervous system. So there's many different formats and ways of breathing, um, but generally having a longer exhale having a nice full inhale and then a much longer exhale and doing that repeatedly, that will start to speak to your body that, okay, I'm safe, right? So even though there's a lot of stuff going on, usually we're physically safe. And so we want to tell our bodies that, okay, and then that will help kind of start draining the stress juice out of our bodies so that we can start to see a little bit more clearly. Um, so I would start with that. It's, you know, the key to happiness is not the absence of negative emotions. It's really about the acceptance of all emotions and, um, and actively then cultivating um, positivity on top of it. So it's not trying to stamp down things. It's actually just being in full acceptance of, of what is. Very good. So let's talk about social connections. You, you mentioned how important they are. I love reading about uh, positive psychology tests, and I read about a happiness test 
uh, performed on people who take the subway to work every day. And some people were assigned to not have any conversations with their fellow passengers, and others were assigned the task of actually having conversations. And it turns out that the commuters who had to endure those horribly awkward conversations with strangers were actually ultimately happier than the the people who kept to themselves. So even if you're a bit introverted, it's probably a good idea to make yourself step out and build up those social connections. Is that right? Well, I am an introvert and I was smiling as you were describing the study because I was just like, oh, you know, my husband is just a super extrovert, like top of the scale. And I'm, I'm what you would call an ambivert. Like I can turn it on when I need to, but you know, he's the one who talks to the Uber driver and I'm the one who just (laughs) sits in the back quietly. Um, and so I would probably not willingly talk to people on the subway, but if someone forced me to, I could see myself feeling so much better afterwards. And I think that goes back to just, we are socially designed beings. We actually, in order for us to feel safe, one of the biggest mechanisms for us to regulate our nervous system is co-regulation with another human. That's why, you know, with children and with babies, with infants, they need to be touched because they don't know how to regulate their nervous system. They need that caregiver to breathe and to hear that heartbeat so that they can feel safe. And that doesn't go away as into adulthood. We need each other to feel safe. We need each other for a sense of homeostasis in our bodies. And so even though it's super awkward and painful for some, when you, when you connect again with that, um, what, you know, psychologists call like a, a weak tie, just a moment with someone who you don't even know, um, and you have a moment of connection it, it really is nutritive for our well-being. So I'm not surprised to hear that. And Stella, I'm sure you have, have read or you've just heard about the book, The Good Life, Lessons of the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. I'm familiar with the study, yeah. So there's an 80-year-long study done by Harvard University. Um, and this is really interesting. Scientists there started tracking the happiness of Harvard students in 1938 during the Great Depression. In fact, one of the participants was American President John F. Kennedy, who was a student at Harvard at the time. And, and the study checked in with participants every couple of years throughout their lifetimes. And in some cases, even many of the participants' children have taken part in the study as well. So today we've got 80 years of scientific data collected from a thousand different people and several generations. And the bottom line, uh, according to the, the current directors of the study and the authors of the book, Happiness comes down to good friends, good family, good relationships. Yep. Our, our relationships and how happy we are directly affect our, our health and our happiness. And the study basically says that human connection is the number one predictor of happiness. Do you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, I agree that with that because I, I'm familiar with that study. And, um, and uh, one of the leaders in positive psychology who's who's no longer with us Christopher Peterson he would always say I remember him always saying like people really matter 
And it's so, again, it's one of those like, it's one of those basic things that we need to be constantly reminded of. Like people really matter. And in our, when, when we move for our jobs or to go to college or for whatever reason, uh, and we break up that cohesive sense of family or friendship, that's so hard. And now more and more people are just moving and it's, it's so important to find community wherever you are, to stay connected with the people that you love. And there's, a, there's another study. Simone Schnall and her colleagues did a study where they would take a group of participants at the base of a hill. And one group was standing at the base of a hill individually by themselves. And then another group got to stand with a friend by their side. And they were asked to estimate the steepness of a hill, of the hill. And the group that was standing with a friend by their side would see the hill as less steep. Wow. And what's even cooler is that then another group was asked to just visualize a friend by their side. And that same effect showed up. So whether we have someone by our side physically or we envision their, them by their, our side, that sense of connection, whether it's in our imagination or it's physical, that felt sense of connection transforms how we see the world. It, dis, it, it's a, it distinguishes how difficult we see a challenge ahead. So that's why it's so important. And that's why people who have a good friend at work actually are more likely to be engaged at work because people really matter. <laughs> and they, they change how we see our reality. And in fact, it's because when we have that social support, I would gather um, when we have that social support, we feel more relaxed, we feel more safe. And, and that changes how we see things in front of us. And with, with human connection being that, that number one predictor of happiness, um, we're, all, we're all different. Some of us are introverted. Some of us are extroverted. What makes you happy may be different from what makes me happy. So even though there are some general things that we can do to be happier, uh, the way we interpret those things can be different for each of us. And uh, for example, we know that spending time with others can greatly affect our happiness. For me, that might mean spending quality time with my wife or my sons. Uh, for you, it might mean getting together with a whole big group of friends, right? Right. Yes. And I, I, I think we have to know ourselves, right? So that's part of the work is to be curious about what you find energizing. Many of us are brought up to think that a certain type of social atmosphere is, is the right one. Um, but I, I love one-on-one -on -one connection. I'm not a huge group person. I find it overwhelming when there's a huge party. Um, but I would love like a few friends or a small dinner party. That's my jam. Yep. Um, and so I know that about myself. And so I will limit the amount of 
huge parties I go to because it just, it's draining for me. Um, and, but meanwhile, my husband, he's the kind of guy who he needs to talk to strangers every day. Like that is his jam. So if he mm-hmm. doesn't get that in his day, he doesn't feel good. So, um, so it's really about knowing yourself and giving yourself the things that, that support your energy. And then just to say it, some people are born obviously into a life where they have many hardships, but the good news is that the research shows that those things that we cannot control don't play a big role in determining our overall happiness. So let's talk about the things that we can control. I've also heard that Uh, We can make ourselves happier just by doing the things that each of us loves to do. If upbeat music and dancing or exercising makes you happy, go for it. If you prefer relaxation, sit by a lake and do yoga and relax, right? Absolutely. I would be intentional with how you spend your time and energy. And this is why one of the inner skills that I talk about very often is boundaries. Because boundaries help you not just keep out what you don't like, but they help you keep in what's important. And so if that is dancing or if that is being in nature or if that is exercising, you know, how do you create boundaries to support your being most alive? I, our needs, I would expect, are different at different times of our life. Uh, is that true? Is there a time... Yeah. Uh, in our lives when people generally are unhappier or happier? I know there was an article that got a lot of attention and buzz about parents <laughs> and parents being less happy um, than than their counterparts who were not parents. And um, I know also like there's, I remember hearing about like people who, um, in their later years actually experience more positive emotion. Um, But I think the way that I look at it and in my work is I, I really ask my clients to get clear on what their values are because your values are the guideposts for your decisions and your choices and even the thoughts that you think and the thoughts that you allow yourself to think. So they keep you in the right lane, moving towards ultimately your vision of who you want to be. That's how I help my clients organize, you know, how to be most alive at work and in life. And what I tell them all the time is that your values are pretty consistent, but depending on what's going on in your life, how you rank those values is what changes. For example, when I became a parent, my well-being might have been like fourth or fifth on my list. But once my baby was not sleeping through the night, my well-being shot up to the very top of the list. And right. and so I think it's we're, we are constantly being asked to recalibrate based on what is happening in our life, to be very present to our current circumstances. And we can either listen 
or we can fight it. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think life will continue to beat you over the head until you're to you, to you listen. And I often in my book, I talk about how I have plenty of wrestling matches with, um, with life trying to resist what it's telling me, but we have to listen. And so I don't know if it's about stage of life, whereas it's just like what's happening right now for you and what is life asking of you? And it might not be your plan, but um, but if you cooperate with kind of what's really begging for your attention and um, listen for how might this very event or experience that you're having be instructional for your transformation, then then you'll probably experience more grace in the moment. And so I think listening for what's needed wherever you are, not necessarily life stage, I think that um, that's always yeah. helpful. Let's talk about happiness at work. Stella, you have a, uh, a YouTube channel that is packed with over 100 helpful short videos with tips on everything from how to master a difficult conversation to how to get more engaged at work or how to delegate better, um, even what it means to live on purpose. According to Gallup, I saw that 79% of people globally are disengaged while they are working. We spend so much of our lives at work. So it just makes sense that our, our work lives probably affect our overall happiness. I, for, I love that um, we're going here. And I would say when my clients come to me, um, well, when my coaching clients come to me and they're like, I don't like what I'm doing, I'm unhappy. Um, I actually, we, we slow down and we work on what I call the inner skills. Uh, because sometimes you have to be able to discern, well, is it really your job or is it you? And it's not to blame yourself for your circumstances, but it's actually for you to realize the power you have over your experience, because you don't want to have to leave and then find yourself in a similar situation, whether it's burning out or feeling like you're talked over or feeling like, uh, this isn't ex as exciting as I thought it was going to be. And so I always tell people, if you're on the verge of quitting, you have a wonderful opportunity to really experiment with uh, practicing yeah. what it means to, you know, speak up for yourself or maintain the boundaries or ask for something you really, really want. So I, I think that, it's a good moment because you actually can be a little braver and and try playing with how might I actually make this work for me? Sometimes it's a matter of adjustment. I've had so many clients where it was a matter of, you know, when we did their vision and their values and then they realized, oh, I can actually be the person I want to be at work and I love my job. You know, they went in two weeks from, you know, zero to 10 yes. to loving their job. And that doesn't happen all the time, but, but it, you want to slow down enough to really reflect on what is it that I really, really want. 
And often I tell people, you know, often when it comes to defining what I really, really want and what is it that makes me happy, we're doing it backwards. So we think of usually people are clear on, you know, the, the title they want to have, how much they want to earn, what they want to achieve. But that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be fulfilled or happy. I think a better approach would be just to flip the sequence and first think about, well, when I'm fulfilled and alive and happy and engaged, you know, what is the quality of my experience? Who am I being? And then work backwards and say, okay, well, what actions, what opportunities will help me be that way? And so we just need to flip the sequence of how we decide what it means to be successful and then see what adjustments we can make. So is what you're describing, is that what you call the the work happiness method? Yes, it's part of it. So the work happiness method has eight parts and we go through developing eight different inner skills. And it's really about teaching people how to have more control over their experience at work and in life. Um, Because we can learn this stuff, even though it feels intangible and ambiguous, like, how do I make my life worth living? How do I make my work worth doing? Um, What do I want? Um, All those questions seem so big, but there's actually a process that I, that I've developed one way that I've developed to help people answer those big, big questions and actually get control over those big things. So let's talk more about that method. I mean, what can they do to make their time at work happier? So first I would get clear on what does it look like when I am happy and what is that ultimate vision? And, um, I have a free tool that if folks want to go to, it's called the Vision Generator. So you go to visiongenerator.com and that's a free tool to help you just start to get clear on who you are at your best. What is it like when your heart is singing? Because that's the starting place. That's where I start with all my clients. We need to know that information to then figure out what adjustments to make. Because usually once you have a sense of how do I want to be and feel, then what we start to get hints of are what are your values. And then when you start to to know what your values are, then you can say to yourself, okay, how can I make today matter? What's in my control? So if if I really want to be a creative person, if I was just to look at the day ahead, where are some moments where I can express my creativity? Can I be more creative in how I dress? Can I be more creative in how I put together this presentation or in how I have this conversation? So what you start to realize little by little is that you actually get to be the person you want to be regardless of the circumstance. But when people start to realize that they can actually be who they want to be in creative ways, they acknowledge that they're actually being that person. Like, oh yeah, I did take a chance on that presentation and do something different with it. When you practice being who you want to be and you're conscious of it, that is very energizing because what you're doing, to you're, you're demonstrating to yourself that you have control and you're also demonstrating to yourself that you're making choices that align with your values and your vision. 
And that actually is what breeds what I call organic confidence. It's when you witness yourself being who you want to be, just doing small things and giving yourself credit for those small wins can make you start to feel really better about the day ahead. I love that. How about just a couple of tips for parents? Are there things that we as parents should be doing to ensure our kids are developing into a happier life? Yes. I think the number one thing, well, I don't know if it's the number one thing, but this is the number one thing that I'm working on, (laughs) um, is really respecting my children's feelings. Yeah. I think when it's, it's really hard when your kid is having a tantrum or they just, they're having a mood and as a parent, you just want to be like, okay, you want to distract them. You want to get over it. Um, you just want it to go away because <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. And for a lot of parents, it can be very triggering and, um, what I do my best to do, and I'm not successful all the time, is to be present and to not try to change it, but to acknowledge. When you acknowledge your child's feelings, you're helping them develop an emotional vocabulary, which is what a lot of us are missing. (laughs) We actually don't have a good emotional vocabulary. I think Brene Brown did a study and she's like, most of us can describe three emotions. Mm. Um, I think it's happy, sad, and mad or something. Yeah, yeah. But um, the more extensive and and competent we can be in noticing our emotions, labeling our emotions, um, and being with our difficult emotions, we're setting up our kids to be very resilient. And by not redirecting them, we are showing them that we love them regardless of where they're at. And we're also helping them regulate because we're staying sturdy. We're being the sturdy leaders for them and allowing them to kind of borrow from us our our groundedness, helping them re-regulate. And all of that really helps build emotionally competent humans um, in the future. So I think just being respectful of where they're at and not trying to be like, smile, get over it. It's okay. Um, That can be very, very helpful. I understand that you are just completing a book. When is it going to be available? And can you tell us more about it? Well, it's actually available for pre-order right now. Um, And it's anywhere you can buy a book, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target. Um, And it's called The Work Happiness Method 8 master eight skills to career fulfillment. And I walk readers through step-by-step how to develop the inner skills to feel more fulfilled and happy at work. And they include managing your mind and mood, how to figure out what you really, really want, how to make decisions with confidence, how to maintain and develop those healthy boundaries, how to have those difficult conversations, and how to come back from setbacks. So um, it's really about everything we've we've been discussing, which is how do you have control over what you can control and realize your power over your everyday. 
In closing, what are the, the top two or three things that we can do to make our lives happier? I love that question. I would find ways to give and express and receive love every day, whether that's telling someone how much you care about them before they leave for work, um, whether that's expressing a form of gratitude and really spending the time to give someone positive feedback on the impact that they made, whether that's just giving a heartfelt thank you for a kind deed um, or doing a kind deed. So there's so many forms and expressions of, of love and caring. So I would put that at the top of the list. Um, taking time to be quiet and still. So whether that's a formal meditation practice or going for a walk, we're going so fast. We're so back to back. One of the things that I love to do in my schedule and I encourage my clients to do it is to create space in between the space, meaning add padding between your meetings if you can, so that you can just have spaciousness, um, spaciousness between your thoughts, between your meetings, um, spaciousness between conversations. So if you're feeling rattled by someone and what someone said, Give yourself space before you respond. So spaciousness to be quiet in all the ways. And um, the third would be I, would be, I would tend to the boring basics. And by boring basics, I go through it in my book. But uh, <laughs> that would be, you know, moving your body, breathing deeply and well. Like breathing, it's not just something that happens, but if you're mindful about it, it can really make a difference in terms of how you feel and live. Drinking your water, <laughs> um, practicing your gratitude, all, walking in nature, being in nature, being uh, you know, with people that you love, all of those, those pouring basics, they really help us be most alive. That's terrific. And, and just to, to go one step further, how would you help people that are coming back from some big setback in their life? Yeah, when, whenever we have a setback, it's so easy for it to not just be about the setback, but for it to be about something so much bigger. Um, our past starts to haunt us, whether consciously or unconsciously, and it can, the event that just happened can become quite inflamed and we start to feel like, you know, we're undeserving of goodness or happiness or things will never work out. So in learned optimism, which is a, a technique um, developed by Martin Seligman, one of the founders of positive psychology, he talks about having uh, an explanatory style which is how you talk to yourself about the setback that just happened. So what the thing to remember is the three Ps. The first is to describe the setback as not personal. So what happened was unfortunate, but it doesn't define me as a human being, right? So maybe I can do things differently next time, but it doesn't mean I'm a total loser or I'm unlovable or that I'm never, you know, that I'm not worthy of success or happiness, right? The second P is that it's not permanent. 
So yes, this is a setback, but it doesn't mean that every future time I try to do this, I'm going to fail. So just this moment in time. And then the third is to see it as it's not pervasive. So yes, this one setback at work really sucked, but it doesn't mean that I'm a bad boss. It doesn't mean that um, I'm a bad parent. It doesn't mean I'm a bad friend. So again, we're trying to contain the spill so it doesn't get into every version of our identity. And we're just trying to contain it. And so by 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 I by taking yourself through this, you're containing the spill. And then again, smear everything with a little self-compassion. <laughs> and um, and I think you're going to be in, in much better shape. Oh, that sounds great. Well, if people want to learn more about you, how can we follow you online? Uh, you can go to my website, stellagrisant.com or wupa.com. You can read my book. And I would say go to LinkedIn as a, as a social media site. That's probably the one I'm updating the most. Terrific. Well, thank you so much, Stella. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Stella mentioned the value of just slowing down and breathing. HPE provides a free membership for team members to Headspace. Headspace is one of the most popular apps designed to help reduce your stress through mindfulness. So if you haven't tried it, download the Headspace app and give it a try. And if you need to talk to someone, HPE's EAP is always available to HPE team members and their families. Links to all of HPE's free resources, including the Employee Assistance Program, can always be found on the Global Wellness page on HPE Insider, or if you're in the U.S., on HPE Wellness at myhperewards.com. My wish for you is that each of us make happiness a priority. Do the things that you really love doing and do them with people you love being with. Thank you to Stella Grisant for being my guest and for helping us all bring a little more sunshine into our lives. I hope it was helpful. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to listen. Until next time, please take care of yourself and keep smiling. Let's talk again soon.